What's up? Welcome to the Confluence VC podcast. This podcast is meant to give you a personal glimpse into the next era of investors and operators. This week we had on Ashley Paston with Bain Capital Ventures. Bain is a multi-strategy fund with offices in New York, Boston, and San Francisco. Ashley sits in New York on the fintech team at Bain, and she primarily focuses on venture and growth stage opportunities in the space. In this talk, we discuss fintech 2.0 and the shift towards embedded finance, evaluating proximity to buyers in a remote world, and navigating around long sales cycles within financial services. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, everyone, welcome to the Confluence Podcast. Today we have someone very special that I've admired for years in their firm for years over at Bank Capital Ventures, Ashley Paston, where we've been actually looking to get her on here for a while now. We had to push things around. It is an honor. Ashley, you want to uh, take a minute or two to give us some insight into your background and how you got into venture, where you are today? Yeah, of course. Hi. Born to two parents in financial services. My mom does sales and trading and my dad owns an insurance agency that funny enough has been in the family since 1905. It was appointed by travelers. And so <laughs> it's been passed down through the ages. I grew up learning all about insurance and, and sales and trading. And so I went to school to study business and then ended up at McKinsey. And at McKinsey, I unsurprisingly had all this background knowledge on some of these industries. So I spent most of my time working with banks, pension funds, asset managers, and insurance companies. Two years after McKinsey, I moved over to Bank Cap Ventures, where I focusing on financial services and fintech. So most of my time now is spent on payments, investing, lending, and insurance. And I've been here for about two and a half years, and it's been such a great ride. That is beautiful. That is beautiful. I always joke with my buddies over at McKinsey, and I'm, I'm just always perplexed as to why it is that BCG and Bain have created their own awesome venture opportunities, and McKinsey doesn't. I'm assuming they would have been very lucky to keep you on the team. <laughs> with that, I find it very beautiful, in fact, that you have a family with fintech background. I think fintech is one of those places that you don't naturally fall into. Maybe nowadays, because it's hot, but if you look at it, three years back, five years back or, or longer, it hasn't always been the most popular place to invest for people to get comfortable with all the complexities behind it. Can you talk a little bit about like how Bain ended up in that space? Like when I was at Point72, uh, we had our hot list of the 10 firms that actually mattered and we've always been a huge fan of Bain, Matt Harrison and a lot of the deals you all have done. Yeah, Bain Capital Ventures overall is a domain specific fund. So we have 30 investors across our three offices and every single person on the team is maniacally focused on their verticals. We have experts in cybersecurity, in SaaS, in healthcare, and the team in New York with Matt Harris, where I work, is focused exclusively on fintech. And I think it's the fact that we spend every single second of every single day thinking about financial services that really 
makes Bain special, but two just helps us find the best entrepreneurs because that's the whole name of the game, right? Figuring out how you can add value to companies. And if we are constantly thinking about their sector, obviously founders know the sector better than we do, but if you're constantly thinking about who the players are, what the market trends are, and, and what's coming up in the next three to five years, I, I believe you can be the most helpful to those founders and, and hopefully find the best opportunities in the space. Got it. I think that makes a ton of sense. It also helps you with branding. I see that you all put out a lot of vocal content surrounding the shift that's going on in, in fintech along with embedded financing and, and uh, financing at the edge and things of that nature. Can you talk a bit about that shift and also about the strategy of that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course. And so the shift really is from fintech 1.0 to fintech 2.0. The way that we define fintech 1.0 was the first stage of fintech players that effectively said the way that incumbents are handling banking or insurance or investing is just very clunky. And so they made better versions of what incumbents offered, the betterments of the world, the lemonades of the world, which by the way are still very powerful and impressive companies. But the, the main tenet was like the way that things are done are not enjoyable for the customer today. And let's bring a more enjoyable, intuitive experience. What we're focused most on is this FinTech 2.0 wave, which is embedding and baking financial technology elements such as lending, investing, and insurance into the software we use every single day. And the reason for that, or the reason we think that's gonna happen and, and it's already started to happen is four main reasons. So the first is it's a zero CAC. So you've already sold a software to a merchant or a customer. And so you're effectively cross-selling versus going out and trying to acquire a net new customer to buy a payments offering or a investing offering um, and the like. The second is novel functionalities. So because you are the software that has a persistent relationship, you can develop unique functionalities that other companies cannot. So a really good example is if you compare a horizontal payments player to a vertically specific software that is added payments, such as Squire. So Squire is a software that uh, serves barbershops mainly, and they have created this novel new function. and Dave, by the way. Yeah. Huge fan of Sanj and Dave. I met them when they were still at their seed and looked at it at 0.72. Amazing company, amazing team. I, I met them at the A and I, I still regret not back um, and understand. I was, that was like my first few weeks at the firm. So I pushed this to someone else who ended up passing. I'm not going to name drop, but I think at the time it was a little bit harder to tell what happened. They were very scrappy, but you couldn't have told, you couldn't have told anyone that they would get that distribution at the way that they did as efficiently. So you're not. But in some ways, maybe I just spend so much time beating myself up over it, but it makes so much sense that if you are the software in the heart and lungs of a company or a barbershop in this case, you can be their go-to confidant in some ways and create all the products that they didn't, that they need or didn't even know they needed. So with Squire, it's mainly software to, to manage your everyday operations and booking appointments and things of that nature. But they also have created these very unique payment functionalities, like the ability to split your tip between the person who cuts your hair and the person who washes your hair, which a plain horizontal player couldn't do. And now they're adding on banking cards because if you have the software that manages your appointments, you handle your payments through Square, why would you not get your banking account through two and just have it all unified in one system? So maybe this is just like in hindsight is 2020 and you could have seen it, but it's the thesis playing out right in front of our eyes and showing how big this could possibly get. Yeah. 
ironically, I've looked at the world the exact same way. I know Clay has focused on fintech for a long time too, but yeah, we think about the world exactly the same. I'm actually like in the midst of investing in a few companies with the exact same fuel. So wait, one, one question I have for you though, mm-hmm. you all clearly build your own theses. You're clearly very vocal about it, which brings in a, a lot of inbound for you all and makes it clear that you all are industry experts. Do you all invest outside of uh, outbound themes too? Or, or do you all try to stick to, to your theses? Yeah, of course. I, I would say it's like a, a very good split. And the reason that we, we have internal theses of where we think the world is going and we try and invest behind those themes and therefore publish content so entrepreneurs who are working on those themes can come to us. But we still, anything that's opportunistic or comes in, we are more than excited to run at because the whole name of the game is investing in the best founders in the whole world and making sure that you are behind whatever that they are working on. And so if it doesn't fit into our box of embedded finance, there are plenty of other areas or boxes that they do fit into, or maybe don't fit into. And that's a great thing because they're challenging us to to rethink our beliefs. So I would say it's a fairly mixed split. I feel that. (laughs) One other thing is you all are headquartered in New York for your FinTech practice. I know uh, from my experience that I don't want to say most, but a myriad of firms who focus on fintech are, are centered there. And it makes a ton of sense because of New York's stronghold on financial services globally. Do you have uh, any thoughts about the current New York fintech ecosystem and how that will expand over time? For instance, it has a very interesting scene. Latin America has a very, mm-hmm. very interesting scene. Southeast Asia as well. How do you see that playing right now? Are they playing field right now? And how do you see that evolve? Yeah. New York is a really thriving ecosystem, specifically in fintech. So we we were invested in JustWorks, which is based out here. Betterment was founded here. Yieldstreet was founded here. And I think we're still in the earliest innings of New York as an ecosystem for fintech. And especially as we move into a more remote world, the aperture widens to other cities that we may have not exclusively focused on in the past. So growth will go anywhere in the U.S. and, and in Europe as well. Our early fintech team historically had just focused on markets where we had our offices in New York, SF, and Boston. And that's just because if they needed us, we can be there in a pinch. And the whole idea is that we can be there no matter what for those companies. But now in a remote world, it just opens up the aperture for all these new companies that we can be helpful to, be resources to, that we don't need to be in person for. And so we can start investing even outside of New York and our other core markets that we historically focused on. Yeah, I know there's a, a big piece that we thought about, which was just like proximity to strategics and buyers. But in the remote world, that's definitely changing. Like, how are you all seeing, seeing that shift? And like, do you think it ever really, or like at least today with technology, that it truly matters how close you are to the buyers and potential acquirers and strategics? I don't think so at all. I, I think ultimately the decision to acquire comes down to what is a synergistic opportunity for your company. And there are obviously ways that synergies manifest themselves, both on the revenue and cost side. But I, I think location, if it was a big consideration, has just been muted significantly in a remote world. We were talking about this before. I, I don't know if we're ever going to go back to a five-day work week in the office. No, but seriously, maybe it's one day on Monday for culture building and to see everyone. But we've proven how efficient people can be working from home. And I don't think location will be a core tenant in an evaluation of an acquisition opportunity going forward. Agreed, 100%. On the note of strategics, customers, and things of that nature, fintech is like 
traditionally had a very long sales cycle. It's incredibly complex to navigate all the different business units within an infrastructure. And then because of like just how old the banking cores have been, <laughs> changing that and like some of the more modern cores are changing that. But it's been really hard to sell into any financial institution for a startup. One, how do you all help your portfolio companies get through those sales cycles? And two, like how have you seen that evolve? Or how do you see it evolving going forward? So we we do have several companies selling into financial institutions. And for those, we try to make as many introductions as possible. And importantly, we both acknowledge up front that we know those sales cycles will be long, but the prize is is very significant in that those contracts are super sticky. And so I think it's an upfront acknowledgement of we know this will be a little bit of whale hunting, but if the, the whales are big enough, it's worth it. The space we've also spent a lot of time on acknowledging the long sales cycles is this developer first fintech space. And so we invested in a company called Move, which is a source available banking as a service platform, which in many ways avoids the longer sales cycles that typically come with uh, bigger financial institutions. And there's been this, of course, across the fintech ecosystem, this developer first trend, but we've been really doubling down on this one with as I said, companies like Move, but also other companies have invested in Orem and others. And I think that's a big way that FinTech is moving into this very easily digestible, easy to on-ramp business model. Yeah, I totally agree. You all are spot on. Also great move with Move. <laughs> I want to be chasing you down. I'm chasing that company down at the B. Don't tell anyone, even though I'll put it on this, this podcast. <laughs> one, one last piece there. The, the fact that we're doing most fintech investors are looking at embedded finances or financial products, finding these low-cac channels. Uh, means that they do have to, in fact, convince enterprise customers to, to sign on, which may have long sales cycles as well, or SMBs or these new financial or these new apps. How do you all look at that from a sales cycle perspective? So the sales cycle of the cross-sell? Uh, of any embedded product, right? So if you're selling it to a telecom or you're selling it to a neobank that's doing like a roll-up of, of cross sale opportunities, like adding debit cards, credit cards, et cetera. I think most of them get it now, but I'm wondering if you all's portfolio companies have any like challenges breaking into the enterprise space versus just the financial side. Oh, I understand. So effectively selling into enterprise with core software and cross-selling them fintech elements and how do those sales cycles differ? I yeah, think they all get it now. And I'm just curious as to like how you think about that. Yeah, that's an approach you have to take vertical by vertical, I think. So if you're selling into prop tech companies and selling them software to manage their units and then cross-selling payments and, and renters insurance and home insurance versus selling into restaurants with software and then cross-selling them again, those same financial technology elements, you need to drill down onto who is the end consumer you're selling to. And those sales cycles typically resemble the sales cycles of, the, of that overall industry. And then FinTech is just either A, helps accelerate that sales process because now they like, they can buy two things in one and don't have to worry about buying from two different vendors or two just gets cross-sold more quickly over time. Sure. Sorry, I don't know, of course, now I'm, I'm a nerd. Like I've loved you all for so long. So I always <laughs> when I talk to someone on the team. With that, because I feel like I'm definitely drilling here. We could talk about FinTech for years. Yeah. Um, I can, I truly can. <laughs> how about we let Clay take over for our quick fire? And then from there, we'll let you ask us a few kind of questions as well, if you like. Awesome. Cool. So these are way less technical, but these are just supposed to be meant to be answered in two sentences or less. We've 
I don't think we've ever had anybody answer in two sentences or less, but that's at least the goal. Right, so first one, what's a recommendation you hear regularly that you think is bad advice? Be a generalist. There's a lot of value to getting on as many deals as possible, but there's so much to be said for being a point person in the industry and knowing all of the nitty gritty details about what a company might face down the road that a generalist may not be as tapped into. Totally agree with that. All right, next one. In the last year, what new belief, behavior, habit has most improved your life? Meditation, I would say. I can't believe it took me until a global pandemic to get into it, but it truly has changed. Like every single day that I meditate, I notice it versus when I don't. Yeah, I think we've had a couple other people say the same thing. It seems to be a recurring theme. All right, next one, aside from having to say no all the time, what's the worst part about venture? It's saying no. I, I, I'll think of a better answer. I, I think it's just so hard. A company is somebody's baby and they've invested their whole life into it and saying no is just really painful. The worst thing besides saying no is the FOMO. I've gotten better with it over time, but it's physically impossible to catch every single seed, series A, and growth stage deal in fintech. And I tend to beat myself up over the ones that slip through the cracks, but over time, you hopefully get more comfortable with it. If you focus on 20 of the best companies and miss the 21st, it sometimes evens out. I don't I, I As you can tell, it's still something I grapple with. <laughs> I have to get better with it. Yeah, totally. I think right now, everybody on the investment side is dealing with FOMO just because it seems like there's so much early stage deal flow going around. So trying to mm -hmm. understand what timelines are real versus which ones are artificial so you can focus on where you need to actually allocate your time versus just chase down stuff that seems to be moving too quickly or just sure. isn't even real in the first place. I think that's really good advice. All right, so got two more questions here. Next one is best piece of advice for junior VCs or those aspiring to break into venture. I would say do the job before doing the job, right? Like many of the folks who are trying to work at Bain as an example have sent me thesis pieces of companies they're looking at or areas they're interested in. And that just stands out so much because it shows that you understand the job that you're getting into. I almost feel like a hypocrite because I fell into venture, but I would say that would be the best way. If I had to do it all over again, that's how I would have done it. Yeah, totally agree. We've had, had a number of people give that answer as well. That's good advice. Well, yeah. uh, no, 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 it's good. I don't know. I think there's a lot of value to it. There's just not a clear onboarding process for people, not a clear ramp for them to go to end up in venture. It seems like most people end up doing banking, consulting, something else, and using that, leveraging that and the networks you get there and the knowledge you get there to get in the venture, but pretty big portion of people working at the junior ranks end up somewhere else or forging their own path along the way. So I'm always interested, like what's, what are the best piece of advice of breaking in? But I think that's good advice. All right. Last one here, unless Tyler has anything else after this, who is a mentor or mentors that you'd want to give credit to? Yeah, I would have to say Matt Harris, who I work with at Bain. Not, I think he's a phenomenal investor, but there are a lot of great investors out there, but there are very few who are, who are as thoughtful, kind, and invested in the success of others the way that Matt is. And it's just, it's such an inspiration to look up to. Totally. I think when I first started and I was like a month into the job, didn't know anybody, I like thought for some reason I could send a cold email to Matt Harris and get a response just showing how naive I was. And he like rerouted me to three or four people on your team. It was like, he did not need to take the time to do that. Like 
guy has way more important things to do but that's always stuck with me so that's that's awesome he really is the best i couldn't ask for a boss or mentor yeah he's the godfather of fintech too so a great <laughs> person to learn under as well yeah i couldn't agree more. cool so i think that's my addition to the interview process i get the easy questions i get tired of the hard ones tyler <laughs> you have anything else i i would love to know who you'd like to see on the confluence podcast and then just give you a chance to ask us any questions yeah ooh, ooh. nikita from rre is just a force to be reckoned with she's awesome jillian williams is also another fintech og at Anthemis. he's great um, right, we're so we're going to do a round table or some co-author pieces for trends in uh, fintech and you are obviously invited i'm gonna talk I'm talking to a noob over at point 72 i've talked to jillian and i'm excited to, to try to get that group together yeah emily mann at red point also i'm picking all my women in fintech because i need to lift each other up i love emily i've worked with emily for two years i love her so much <laughs> so those are i could also send you some other names too i i have a very long list of people i love so true true Leo, if you have any questions for us, shoot away. How do you decide who to bring on the podcast? Ooh, Clay, you That's got a good this. question. We, I don't know, we prioritize referrals over anything. So we've had a number of guests will ask who they'd want to see. And if they are willing to give an intro, we prioritize those over anything else. And then if not, we just, we use these as learning experiences ourselves. Like I know absolutely nothing. And I'm just trying to surround myself with people way smarter than myself. So I think both of us have just, we've tried to go through the members list, like, all right, like who can we learn from? Who would have something interesting to say? And we, it's not as structured of a process as you'd probably think, but I don't know, we, we go through once a week and we try to figure out like who can we get on the phone with, who would we want to learn from? But again, like try to prioritize referrals before we do that. Yeah. We also prioritize contributions to the community. So I would say like a cool, like 20% or something like that of people who are, who've been on the podcast, we specifically reached out to them because they are huge in referring people to Confluence to get more members or like they're very active in our Slack groups and adding resources to the database. And then outside of that, we love to just monitor what people are writing in real time or what projects they're working on in real time. And when someone does something dope, we have to get them. What, can you give me an example of something dope that you, some, that someone did that was super dope that made you like have to reach out to them immediately? Yes. So Ken at, at Shasta, I don't know if you listened to that mm -hmm. one, but that was like October, November, maybe he wrote like a full length ebook on breaking into <laughs> venture. I remember he posted it somewhere or maybe somebody else posted it and I took half a day to read it. It was like, this would have been something that I would have paid hundreds of dollars for as somebody trying to break in, like just had so much package knowledge and it wasn't generic wisdom. So we reached out to him like, Hey, this was awesome. Like, would you want to come talk about this more slash like, let us ask you more questions relating to your job and what's interesting to you. And he was all for it. I'm trying to think who else, but we reached out to Megan, Megan Lois at Larer Hippo after she started her is actually before she started her Slack community, but after she launched that medium post on Gen Z trends, which kind of sparked mm -hmm. that Slack community, we reached out to her and said, Hey, this is really cool. We'd love to pick your brain on it. I'm sure there's a couple others that I'm missing, but Tyler, you have any? Yeah, I have two that come to mind immediately. One is someone who we haven't had come on the podcast yet. 
but we've already reached out to her and I need to facilitate this ASAP. Her name is Jomira Herrera over at Calvin mm-hmm. there. And she did a really interesting piece on the new career stack to empower the new economy that we live in today. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll have her come on and speak on as soon as she, if she's uh, still open to it. And then another one is just some really close friends, Jay Drain and, uh, and Tasha Kim, who did the consumer trends piece, which uh, honestly inspired a lot of how we're going to go about doing the Confluence co-author pieces. They're both incredible human beings generally. Uh, mm-hmm. So we were eventually get them on, but like that consumer trends report with all the people that they have participate, like people from M13 and a ton of other funds just mm-hmm. became bigger in life because of the power of not making about one person. Yeah. That's awesome. I love the examples. Wow. Yeah. I have, now I feel like I have to meet every single person you just mentioned because I didn't know them already. <laughs> I mean, yo, just hop on the Confluence Slack and say what's up in their DMs. They'll respond in 10 minutes. <laughs> I will. I really will. That's awesome. This is so great. Thank you guys so much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank yeah, you. for sure. This was awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Have a beautiful day. You too. All right. Bye, guys. Huge thanks again to Ashley for coming on this week, and we hope that each of you were able to pick up something valuable from this talk. For those of you that are interested in learning more from Ashley, we've included her social media handles in the description below, and for members of Confluence, you can find her contact info within the directories page. For next steps, if you're an investor and have not already signed up to join, we encourage you to check out our website at www.confluence.vc to submit your info to become a member. If you have any feedback for us, please feel free to reach out directly either to Tyler at tyler at gpv.com or myself at clay at Hope to hear from you all soon.